Though each week before our scripture reading, we're going to remember this blessing from Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. So today our scripture reading is Revelation chapters 6 and 7. If you want to follow along in the Bible, in one of the Bibles in the chairs, it's on page 1092, so towards the end. Revelations chapters 6 and 7. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, a crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Then I saw him open the sixth seal a violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the tree or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God. 
he cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger, they will no longer thirst, the sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There are times in this life when it seems like the sky is falling and there's no place to stand. I imagine that's what it felt like in the daycare center in Thailand this Thursday when a man walks in, former police officer, and starts a rampage that ends up killing 36 people. 24 of whom are children. We hear news like this. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Hurricane Ian, in its fury, pummels the coast of Southwest Florida, and it breaks further south than meteorologists expect, and some communities are caught off guard. We talked to Frank and Barbie Chahowski last week, and thankfully they're 
they're doing pretty well, although their neighborhood was just devastated. But Frank told me stories of people that were in their homes and the water just came in so fast, they were carried up to the second story of their home and they were pounding on the windows trying to get out and they could not survive. And there are a lot of people in Florida today feeling like the sky is falling. And they're wondering, who can fix this broken world? And the only answer our secular age has to offer is, you broke it, you fix it. A pastor and his wife in my circle of acquaintances have been praying desperately for their teenage son who's been suffering from leukemia, and they were encouraged that he was making progress. But then meningitis struck, and surgery to reduce the swelling in the brain was unsuccessful. And on September 29th, they wrote, Ezra ran and finished his race. We are unspeakably crushed. He's with Jesus but we are crushed. God heard our prayers and had different plans. We're confused and crushed. And yet he is still a praiseworthy God. Ezra knows that well. Any attempt to explain away their confusion would only crush them more, adding insult to injury. So we grieve we weep with those who weep. We lament and we cry out with God's people, how long, Lord? When will you step in and do something to heal your broken creation? And last week in Revelation 5, that's where John the Apostle was. He introduced us to a mysterious scroll that's in the hand of the one who sits on heaven's throne and this scroll is a highly classified document. John, who is seeing this vision, is weeping uncontrollably because a comprehensive search has been made and there is absolutely no one in heaven or on earth who has been found worthy to break its seals and to open this scroll. John weeps because if no one can open this scroll, then that means there's no one who can heal the heartache of Ezra's parents. If no one can open this scroll, that means there's no one who can answer the anguish of those who are burying their children in Thailand this week. If no one can open this scroll, there's no one who can ensure that justice is going to be done for the evil that ignited that rampage. If no one can open this scroll, it means that we're alone in the fire and in the flood, and we're destined to be swept into a hurricane of despair ourselves. Chaos reigns. The sky is falling, and there's no place to stand if no one can open this scroll. But we ended last week not weeping, but rejoicing. We were worshiping in adoration because of verse 5 of chapter 5. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lamb was slain. 
And his blood has the power to heal this broken world. And now the slain lamb is standing, though he has been slain. So death has not toppled him. He has conquered over death. And now he's ready to guide history to a conclusion that's going to take our breath away, that's going to heal our broken hearts, that's going to make everything sad come untrue, and that's going to right all wrongs. So we approach chapter 6, standing on our tiptoes. We're waiting with bated breath. What's going to happen when the lamb on the throne starts opening these seven seals around the scroll? And what we find is a series of judgments are unleashed on the earth. This is the first of several cycles of judgment that we're going to read in this book of Revelation. And these cycles of seven portray the world's history as it unfolds up to its culmination, its ending. And we're going to get different perspectives on this whole history between the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus as we read through this book. And just to be clear, in this passage, when it's talking about seven seals, it's not talking about the animals that I saw and heard and smelled on the beach in California a few weeks ago as it was just filled with these monk seals, hundreds of them. That's, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the wax seal that authenticates that a document has not been tampered with. One scholar tells us that the scroll reveals how the Lamb's victory is to become effective in establishing God's rule over the world. And each seal, as it's opened, shows us something that we can expect as history unfolds under the direction of King Jesus. This is, this is what life's going to look like between the first and second comings of Christ. That's what chapter 6 and 7 are here to answer. So these chapters before us break down into three sections. We're going to see the turmoil of history, the terror of Judgment Day, and then finally the safe place to stand. First, the turmoil of history in verses 1 through 11. As this lamb starts to break open the seals and to open the scrolls, John is about to see what he was weeping about not being able to see, in chapter 5. Now he's going to see it. And what does he see? Four horsemen galloping onto the scene. They represent conquest, war, economic injustice, and death in Hades. And remember, this is a vision. It's a vision that describes profound realities. In the book of Revelation, we really do not meet any truths that we haven't already seen in the Bible. But Revelation is like the, the capstone of the whole Bible, and it takes things that we've already seen in the scriptures and paints them for us in fluorescent colors so, it, so as to capture our imagination. If you like the Lord of the Rings, think of the Nazgul here, those black riders who are Sauron's most terrible servants. And when John watches the lamb open the first seal in verses 1 and 2, he hears a loud voice as one of the four living creatures around the throne thunders, Come! And he looks and sees a white horse. Its rider has a bow. A crown is given to him. And he goes forth into the earth, conquering and bent on conquest. 
Now, some people think that this is a reference to Jesus Christ, because in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus does come riding in on a white horse, and his name is Faithful and True. But I think it's better to see this in keeping with the other horsemen that we're about to see, uh, all of whom are representative of evil in some way. And so some think that, that this rider on the white horse here is someone who's pretending to be the Messiah. He's the evil one masquerading as an angel of light. And, and Revelation has this theme running through it. Beware of counterfeits. Beware of pretenders. Others see this horse and rider as a symbol of the many megalomaniacs who have roamed the earth. People like Pol Pot and Hitler and Stalin and Kim Jong-un who are set on wreaking havoc and conquering the world. Jesus said that we would hear of wars and rumors of wars, and that's been happening all through the time since Jesus ascended, and it will continue to happen until the time when he comes again. Just this past week, you can look it up, there were 2,307 events of political violence reported in the world. And with that violence comes the shedding of blood, which is why in the second seal, verses 3 and 4, a bright red horse comes onto the scene. Its rider is permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he is given a great sword. This also has been going on throughout history from the time of Genesis 4 when Cain murdered his, blood, uh, his brother Abel and, and the blood from the field was crying out to God for justice. This has been going on throughout history, whether it's through armed conflicts or terrorism or drive-by violence in the streets, murder, abortion. History is characterized by bloodshed. Then the third seal, verses 5 and 6, highlights one of the grave consequences of political corruption and war. It's a black horse whose rider has a pair of scales in his hand. He is the rider of economic injustice. Imagine the price of food staples that everyone relies on skyrocketing 8, 10, 12 times the normal cost. Milk at $25 a gallon. Bread at $36 a loaf. Gas, not $6 a gallon like in California, like 18 $30 a gallon. It's just out of control. And so the result is scarcity of resources for the average person. You can barely afford to put food on the table. And at the same time, there are gross inequities as the luxuries enjoyed by the rich, like wine and oil or new iPhones, remains untouched. And of course, with war and with poverty, comes conditions that cause infection and disease and starvation. So in verses 7 and 8, the fourth seal introduces us to a fourth horse, and this one's ugly to look at. He's pale, like a corpse, and the rider's name is Death, and his sidekick Hades follows him around. And a quarter of the earth is struck down. Some die by the sword, others by famine and pestilence. Some are thrown to wild beasts. As John sees these visions unfold, he's showing us what we can expect to experience in this fallen 
world. We shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be caught off guard by conquerors who are bent on conquest. We shouldn't be shocked by bloodshed or economic hardship or deadly afflictions. What is surprising, what does startle us, is how these verses point out where the turmoil of history comes from. Look at the language, verse 2. It says, a crown was given to the rider on the white horse. Or verse 4, its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. Or verse 8, death and Hades were given authority over a fourth of the earth. And do you notice what every time what the living creatures around the throne are saying as these horsemen of the apocalypse ride forth? What are they saying? Come, come. It's like heaven is beckoning these horsemen to come and inflict judgment on the earth. Shockingly, Brett Davis writes, the lamb on the throne seems to be welcoming the horses. If this isn't our lived experience, I don't know what is. God, who ought to be healing the world, frequently seems to be allowing the opposite. As the Lamb begins to open the scroll, it's like all the heartache of human history begins to unfold before us. It's like hell is breaking loose. So what do we need to learn from this? We need to learn what we sing that he, Jesus, is sovereign over all the tribulations that come upon this world. Don't misunderstand me here. Jesus does not approve of oppressors who come to conquer and who are bent on conquest. Jesus hates the shedding of blood. Jesus despises economic oppression and injustice, and he was a friend of the poor. He's the lifter of the lowly. Jesus was outraged by death when he saw it here on earth. He was so outraged by death that he went into one-on-one combat with death on the cross, and he defeated it once and forever. But as the sovereign Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ uses these bad things to accomplish God's good purposes. Nancy Guthrie writes, rather than seeing judgment only as something that will happen at the end of time, we need to see that even now, a world that has rejected and rebelled against God is experiencing judgment. We are living in a world that is under the judgment of God for rebelling against him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that right now we are living in a world that is under the judgment of God for rebelling against him? And that Jesus is sovereign over the the judgments that come upon this world? Can we think of a few good ways that judgment 
can be used in the hand of Jesus as he unfolds God's plan for history. Why would Jesus allow these things? Let, let me give you three reasons, and the first two come from a commentary by James Hamilton. Why would Jesus, the, the good Lord, the, the sovereign Savior, why would he use things like, like death and economic injustice and all this suffering? Well, one reason is that he wants to paint a clear contrast between the consequences of embracing God's rule and rejecting God's rule. This world has rejected the rule of God. And so God uses all these hardships, all these bad things to show the world that if you do not welcome God as your king, if you will not receive him as your savior, that this is where the world is destined to go. He wants people to see what happens when humans reject the true God and embrace false gods. And he wants the world to see that our only happiness and our only peace and our only security are found in embracing Jesus as the true Lord and God. So God brings hard things into the world so that people will see, hey, don't put your hope in this world. A second reason that Jesus uses suffering and judgment on the world and that this is a good thing is, is what he says in Matthew 24, verse 8. Jesus there says that these judgments that come upon the earth, they are the beginning of the birth pains. True or false, birth pains are awful. You don't want to go through it. But when they're at their very worst, the baby comes. And that's why these judgments are more than just angry retribution from God. They're part of of the necessary process that's going to bring about new life. They're part of the necessary process that's going to bring about a new creation, a, a new heavens and a new earth that's going to be even better than Eden. They're the beginning of the birth pains. And a third reason that G these judgments are good in the hands of King Jesus is that they have a sanctifying purpose for those who belong to the Lamb. We go through all the same things that the world goes through. We experience suffering. We experience cancer. We experience death. We go through hurricanes. But in the lives of those who trust in King Jesus, these judgments have a sanctifying effect on us. They don't drive us away from God. They draw us to him. They help us to purify our hearts so that we long for him alone. Now we see as this unfolds that believers are certainly not exempt from the judgments that come upon the earth. In fact, in the fifth seal, we see how a judgment is particularly focused on believers as we get a picture of those who have been martyred for their faith. Let's read verses, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. So the scene switches from earth to heaven, and we're at a special place in heaven. Where? Under the altar. What happens on the altar? That's where sacrifices are made. That's where blood pours. So under the altar is where the blood of sacrifice pools. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that, that Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins once for all, and that it was presented on the heavenly altar. 
So John sees the souls of those who have faithfully followed Jesus unto death. Many of them are his friends like Peter and James and Stephen and the rest of the disciples. And what a comfort it must have been for John to see them pictured here as hidden under and protected by the sacrifice of Christ. One writer says, those who have faithfully followed Jesus even to death are pictured here as a sacrifice for the lamb and with the lamb. And instead of hearing the voices of the living creatures in heaven, now we hear human voices crying out, and they sound a whole lot like the book of Psalms as they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The premise of their prayer is that Jesus is in charge. He is the Holy Lord. He is sovereign and true. He's the one who decides the timescale of the sufferings his people endure. And the answer assures us that there is a plan. It's not arbitrary. History is not out of control. Jesus is not like an airline pilot flying through the Bermuda Triangle in the middle of a great hurricane, desperately trying to keep his plane in the air through turbulent skies. That's not Jesus. Jesus is in charge of the turbulence. Jesus rules the wind and the waves. He is the one who is opening these seals. And there is no war, no famine, no persecution that can thwart his sovereignty. He is sovereign over strife, sovereign over sickness, sovereign over suffering, sovereign over Satan. So in verse 11, the answer to the prayer comes with these words. They were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. So even though right now believers are being tortured and martyred for their faith around our world today, God knows. He has fixed the number of those who will be slain for their testimony to Jesus. He knows what that number is, and when that number reaches its maximum, God will intervene, and he will avenge their blood. There is an expiration date put upon the sufferings of God's people. And one day, he's going to come, and all our cries for justice are going to be satisfied with his coming. All our confusion over the suffering this life is going to be resolved. Our broken hearts are going to be fully healed. Everything that's been shattered is going to be redeemed. And we're going to see the beauty of Jesus' plan. Right now, we have to wait a little while longer. But why is God telling us these things? He's telling us so, so that we will not be surprised at the fiery ordeals when they come upon us. He's telling us so that we'll be ready to follow Jesus no matter what the cost. He's telling us so that we will not imagine that persecution's just for people who live at another time in another place, but it would never happen here in the Fox Valley. He's telling us so that we will be ready to endure it faithfully. And what we have to resolve as we read this more than anything else, we have to say, nothing matters more than that I be faithful to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. 
Because I have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are giving their lives right now for their faithfulness to the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. And the world that we live in, it's telling us, don't you dare talk about the word of God. Don't you dare talk about the gospel of Jesus and its implications. Keep your mouth shut. Be silent. But the voice of the martyrs is calling us to be faithful unto death, not to be lulled into a complacent silence. The voice of the martyrs from under the altar is calling out to us, God's people today, saying, from this time forth, resolve. Resolve that nothing will matter more to you than being faithful to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. Let faithfulness to Jesus matter more to you than comfort in this life. Let faithfulness to Jesus matter more to you than financial security in this life. Let faithfulness to Jesus matter more to you than popularity in this world. Let faithfulness to Jesus matter more to you than life itself. Because nothing matters more than being faithful to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And one day he's going to return. And on that day it will be crystal clear that nothing matters more than faithfulness to him. The opening of the sixth seal ushers in this great and terrifying day of judgment. It's described here in a way that should make us tremble. The terror of judgment day in verses 12 through 17. Let's read. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. Just imagine this. An amazingly vivid picture. Behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun becomes black as sackcloth. The full moon is like blood. Imagine shaking an apple tree and all the apples fall off that tree. That's what God is going to do with all the stars of the sky. They're all going to come falling down. It's like God is saying, lights out on the universe. You're done with. The sky vanishes like a scroll that's being rolled up and mountains and islands are removed from their places. Can you envision anything like this? Kate and I were in New York City for a day back in May and we took a tour of the September 11th National Memorial Museum. And in that museum, you go down, 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 deep into the belly of those, those towers that came crashing down. It takes you all the way down to ground zero. You can feel the damp, cold air. And as you're down there, you see relics of the towers, things that survived the crash, huge pieces of of metal that were torn apart. And, and you can hear the voices of those who were trapped inside those towers. And then you see pictures of the people who were outside on the street you were just walking down, and, and you see the billows of debris just coming like a huge avalanche, threatening to engulf them, and they're fleeing for their lives. Multiply the terror of that day to an infinite degree. And that's what John sees here. 
And here's a terror that's not going to affect only Manhattan Island. It's going to engulf the whole earth. And we're told this is a day when God's enemies will want to hide from him more than anything else. Someone once asked the novelist Kingsley Amos, Amos if he believed in God. Do you believe in God? No, he replied. And I hate him. I don't believe in him. And I hate him. That's the voice of the people we see here. What's the most terrifying thing about Revelation chapter 6? It's not the horsemen. It's not the blackened sky or the falling stars. The most terrifying thing for God's enemies on the day of judgment will be Jesus, the face of Jesus. It will be the Lamb himself. The Lamb, that's the one they want to hide from. And these who had nothing in common before kings, nobles, generals, the rich, the powerful, who thought they were above the common fray, they're going to be joined together with every slave and every free person, and they're all going to be hiding in the caves and among the rocks on the mountains and quoting the prophet Isaiah here, or Hosea here, they, they're going to say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That's the most terrifying vision out of all. The face of Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How can he be a terror? He who shed his blood so that the whole world could be saved. So that none should perish, but have everlasting life. Now they're running from him. They're fleeing from him because they're terrified by him. How, how is it that the lamb who loves sinners could also be the lamb who is filled with wrath? So that people want to flee and would rather have mountains fall on them than to face him. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of um, someone really offending you. Really doing something mean, bad. And it hurts. And somehow in your heart, you managed to find mercy to offer forgiveness to that person. And you tell them about the offense and you say, I'm willing to forgive you. And they just look at you and say, I don't need your forgiveness. I don't want your love. They walk away. That only intensifies the offense, right? Love spurned is a terrible thing. And that's what's going to happen on the day of judgment. As many, many people who said on earth, I do not need a savior. I do not need to be forgiven. Are going to see 
the penetrating gaze of the one who suffered for their salvation. And they're going to be terrified. And I so don't want that to be any of you. I don't want anyone in this room to be crying out on that day, fall on me, mountains and hills and rocks. Hide me from the face of the one seated on the throne. Hide me from the wrath of the Lamb because the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? And that brings us to the last point this morning. There is a safe place to stand, praise the Lord. This is a desperate question, who can stand? But there's a decisive answer given in chapter 7. It's in verse Nine, what do we see? A vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number. What are they doing? They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. One of our most important tasks on earth is helping people to find this decisive answer to the desperate question that's asked at the end of verse chapter 6. Who can stand before the Lamb on Judgment Day? An old Scottish Christian named George Smeaton said this, to convert one sinner from his way is an event of greater importance than the deliverance of a whole kingdom from temporal evil. And I think that is true. All these kingdoms are going to be crashing down. But what is God concerned about? He's concerned about converting sinners from their way so that they can stand before the throne of God and the Lamb on that great day of judgment and not be afraid. So praise be to God that there is a safe place to stand. And in verses 1 through 3, what we see is the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth and they're restraining the winds of God's judgment from coming over the earth. They're holding it back so that nothing will be allowed to harm the earth or the sea or the people in the earth until God has placed a seal of protection on the foreheads of those who belong to him. The Lord knows those who are his, and he marks them out for safety on that great day of wrath. And he describes those who are marked out in two different ways. In verses 4 through 8, we have the 144,000 with 12,000 from the various tribes of, of Israel. But the list is not in the order that you normally expect it to be. It starts with Judah because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is the one who gathers all the nations to himself. And I think what we have here is a picture of the completion of the people of God. It's, it's very symbolic, showing us that, they're, 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 that God knows every number of his people and the number is complete. And then we say, see the same group in verses 9 and 10. John hears the number of the sealed in verse 4, the 144,000. Then he sees in verses 9 and 10 a vast multitude 
And they're not just Israelites, they're from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And they've been protected from God's judgment. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're not cringing in fear. There's no dread before the throne of God. Instead, in in verse 14, they delight. Verse 15, they are before the throne of God and they serve him there day and night in his temple. They delight in his presence. They don't need to flee from his presence because verse 15 says, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. There's no lack of of need. Every imaginable need is satisfied because it says in verse 16 that God is meeting their needs. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. They've been saved from the wrath of the lamb. In fact, the lamb has become their shepherd. And because he knows their nature, this shepherd knows precisely what his sheep need. And in verse 17, it says, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So who are these people who have escaped from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. That's the question in verse 13. Who are these clothed in white robes? Where have they come from? Listen to the answer in verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And I think that's a phrase that just speaks of all the suffering that goes on between the first and second coming of Christ. They've come out of it and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Imagine that. I often drop things on my clothes and when I'm eating and I get a stain on my shirt and I have to take one of those Tide things to try to get the stain out. Can you imagine a Tide pen filled with blood? You're blotting that on your white shirt. How is that going to make things cleaner? But here is a blood that purifies Here is a blood that makes things clean. It takes away the sins of the world, the blood of our redemption, the blood of atonement that covers all our sin, the blood of reconciliation that brings us home to God. Here is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath its flood lose all their guilty stains. That's why they're there. That's why they're safe in the judgment. And they know that all glory belongs to God for what he's done. Not a one of them say, salvation belongs to me. I did it my way. I'm here because of how wise I was, how strong I was, how good I was. No, they all cry out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb And all of heaven joins with them saying amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And that's what we want to do as God's people. We want to give all glory to him for saving us from the wrath our sins deserve. So I just want to close with a question that an old hymn I used to like to sing when I was a kid asks, It says this, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are your garments spotless? 
Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Let's pray together.